Welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. And I'm Sahar Khan, a visiting research fellow at Cato. Today, we're talking about Iran. Since we last talked about Iran on the podcast, Trump has pulled out of the Iran deal and the United States has started reimposing economic sanctions raising once again all sorts of questions about the future of Iran's nuclear program. At the same time, since Mike Pompeo's major speech about Iran back in May, it has been clear that getting a better nuclear deal is only the beginning of the administration's broader strategy of defanging Iran and reducing its influence in the Middle East. Joining us today to untangle all of this is Barbara Slavin, Director of the Future of Iran Initiative at the Atlantic Council. Barbara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Before we dive into a discussion of Iran, let's start with the news. Uh, And let's start with uh, Senator John McCain, who passed away uh, this week at the age of 81. Thoughts? Well, you know, I did not agree with him on on foreign policy in most cases. He was uh, kind of a classic hawk, although he did admit that his uh, support for the Iraq war was a mistake. He did that, I believe, in the final book that he wrote. Uh, On Iran, he famously called for bomb, bomb, bombing Iran, we may, may remember, Uh, some years back. He was definitely very hawkish about Iran and about its influence in the region. Um, But like many people in Washington, uh, I respected him. I thought that he stuck with his principles by and large. And uh, he was funny and uh, he knew how to engage with journalists uh, without uh, calling them fake news or the enemy of the people. And uh, I I think uh, he will be well-remembered for his bipartisanship and for his dignity. Yeah, I I agree. And, you know, I watched the uh, documentary about about his life, and it's hard not to be inspired um, by, you know, his experiences and and his fortitude making it through that and then, you know, devoting so much of his life to public service. That's an inspiration for everybody, regardless of your Mm -hmm. partisan flavor. One other thing, too, is that he always went to visit American troops. So he saw the results of his policies, good, bad, or indifferent. And may I point out that the current occupant of the White House is yet to visit any of the American troops who are stationed overseas. No, that's a great point. And what I, when I think about Senator McCain, I like to think about the Detainee Treatment Act that he was so passionate about. I think because he had been tortured in Vietnam, this was something that he didn't want the United States to do. And he was adamant um, about the United States not engaging in inhumane treatment. It's also interesting to me how he also thought that one can wage a war without engaging in torture. And that is something I think has has yet to happen. So I think in some ways he was very idealistic as well. Another thing when I think about Senator McCain is Sarah Palin. I just don't understand the logic behind that. And I think, I mean, I don't really have empirical evidence for this, but I feel like whatever happened in that campaign is one of the reasons why the Republican Party got so much more right wing. And it just was such an odd choice. But, um, you know, I suppose that's all in the past. And he will be remembered fondly, especially for his bipartisanship, which unfortunately doesn't seem to exist in D.C. anymore. Okay, uh, moving on. Trade war uh, between the U.S. and China worsening, heating up. I don't know what the right adjective is for a trade war. Is it cool off, heat up? Um, But um, most recently, uh, Trump administration targeting Chinese chemicals, plastics, semiconductors, um, and so on. I mean... Short-term effects, long-term effects, what what are we seeing here? Inflation, prices going up, uh, you know, uh, 
I'm not a believer in, in trade wars. Uh, I think there are appropriate ways to try to deal with trade imbalances. And uh, again, I don't understand uh, President Trump's fixation with trade deficits. Uh, it makes no sense to me, especially when China uh, has so much American debt. And uh, you know, if there are ways to to push China to uh, not steal intellectual property. We had an agreement, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Trump threw away, that actually would have given the United States a lot more leverage in terms of China's unfair trade practices, unfair economic practices. And, you know, I've yet to see a replacement. Uh, this this trade war is kind of pointless as far as I can see, and it's, it's just going to cause problems for people. It certainly is causing problems for farmers. Uh, and uh, I wonder if what what they're going to think about when they go into the voting booth in November, whether they're going to support the Republican Party that has brought them these tariffs. Yeah, I, I um, being from Michigan myself, I I often and I've, I think I've said this even before on the podcast, which is, um, hey, hey, Mr. President, 1980 called and it wants its foreign policy back. <laughs> um, you know, not only. You know, fighting a trade war that's about 37, 40, however many years out of date now that people wanted when Japan was supposedly dumping, you know, cheap products on the US and cars and all this other stuff, uh, but also the response to Iran. So it's, everything Trump does smells so much to me of, of early 1980s of Michigan. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's if you want to- wearing shoulder pads. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't really see, I mean, this is, the trade war is such a blunt instrument to try to get any specific uh, thing done, uh, that it would be much more efficient to go right at intellectual property or whatever the actual issue is. Mm -hmm. But if Trump has some other metric of what winning a trade war looks like, I would love for him to share it because I just no one has offered any reasonable interpretation of of the end game here that makes this worth the suffering that is causing to American consumers and and you know perhaps enough of them in certain pockets that Trump's going to be sorry. Yeah. about this when he runs for re-election. Yeah, I, I think the, the inflation is such that it's already canceled out the, the tax cuts for most middle-class Americans. Absolutely. And I think a lot of analysts are extremely worried about um, market stagnation. I mean, China has been has said that it would want to restructure its debt. But considering the trade war now, it might make the Chinese put that off, which basically means that at the countries that they have given money to, there's less and less credit for the market to stabilize. So this is going to be something that we'll have to watch really closely. And I don't think this is, I don't think Donald Trump understands how the market works. So this whole debt restructuring to me, I think goes over his head, but analysts are extremely worried about it. And that's going to be one of, if not the most um, negative long-term effect that we're going to see because of this trade war. Yeah, doesn't sound so good. Okay. Uh, a few months ago, uh, Washington was abuzz with discussion um, on how Saudi Arabia was on the path to reform um, under the leadership of the new king, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, women being allowed to drive. This was seen as like, wow, this is a new era for Saudi Arabia, revolutionary development uh, in the kingdom. Um, but now we're getting reports of um, the Saudi authorities seeking the death penalty um, uh, in order to be able to behead uh, a woman activist. And, you know, why? Who Who is this person to deserve such uh, special treatment? And, and what's going on in Saudi Arabia? Hmm. Good question. Um, I have. I was not one of those who uh, who fell for the charm of Mohammed bin Salman. Unlike many of my uh, colleagues in Washington, including well known columnists like Tom Friedman, uh, who wrote the most incredibly sycophantic columns after you know spending three hours in the presence of this guy. Um, 
Saudi Arabia is an interesting country. It 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 is really stuck as the the world's gas station. It has not been able to diversify its economy uh, ever. Uh, it uh, has relied largely on foreign labor to do almost all the heavy lifting in the country. Uh, the work ethic, such as it is, has not been great, except among the women who, <laughs> who of course, are present in larger numbers in the universities and so on, but don't have the employment uh, to that's commensurate with that. Um, he he talked a good game about providing some entertainment for people, so they didn't always have to go to Bahrain or Dubai to see a movie, to sit in a cafe with members of the opposite sex. Uh, but it's it's just not been enough, and and his. Many of the steps he's taken, particularly in foreign policy, but not only in foreign policy, have been so reckless. Uh, the war in Yemen, horrible, world's hum worst humanitarian disaster, and the Houthis are not being defeated. They are still there, as far as I can tell. They haven't lost much, much ground. The the fight with Qatar, why uh, taking the prime minister uh, of Lebanon hostage, <laughs> uh, and you know, thinking somehow that would make him distance himself from Hezbollah as if that were possible at this point in Lebanon. Uh, all of these things, terrible, terrible mistakes. And then he announces women can drive and he th throws in prison all of the women who've been campaigning for this for the last 20 years. And he wonders why the world is not jumping up and down and, and applauding. Um, where is the adult supervision? This used to be a country that that at least was cautious in its moves and had some weight uh, on the international stage. Uh, I remember Saad al-Faisal, the longtime foreign minister. I remember King Abdullah. These were serious personages. And uh, it seems as if there is no adult supervision anymore in Saudi Arabia. They're not getting foreign investment. In fact, foreign, uh, capital is leaving the country. They've called off the IPO for Saudi Aramco, which was going to bring in all this cash. Uh, so I, I don't see a, a Good, uh, you know, future ahead for Saudi Arabia unless uh, Mohammed bin Salman changes his ways uh, in a radical direction, in a, in a really radical direction. So this is sort of a a small, small case that sort of illustrates a much bigger problem with where Saudi Arabia is today. Because if you're if you're casting back to the the old Saudi Arabia as wow, those are the good old days. That's that's not extremely. Uh, no, uh, no, because it, I mean, it didn't function very well before, uh, but uh, at least there was some sort of consensus within the royal family. Uh, and, you know, some of the things that Mohammed bin Salman has advocated are absolutely necessary. It's just he's not implementing them properly. I think about the driving thing, I think one of the reasons why it became such a hot issue is because it is so ludicrous that women cannot drive, right? And I think that this issue became politicized in such a way that we're not really asking one of the main questions, which is what do Saudi women want? And a lot of these women actually are fine with the guardianship. I mean, they feel that there are certain perks that they enjoy because of male guardianship. This is a system that they've grown up with for generations. Um, a lot of this is also, uh, you know, has to do with their interpretation of Islam, which which varies from other Muslim countries. So I think when we talk about women's rights in Saudi Arabia, we always end up talking about what the men want the women to do. And hardly ever is there a discussion of what the women want. Partly it's because access to the women is so hard. And some of it is also that perhaps when we do do some of the research, we realize we're not getting the answers that we want, right? These women are not necessarily saying, okay, we want to 
work alongside men, right? Some of them are certainly saying that, but that's not not all of them. Um, and there's so many issues that women have to deal with in terms of, you know, segregated hospitals, um, women employment, being doing simple things like playing sports and and teaching their children how to swim. I mean, I mean, it ranges. It's such a huge range of women's activities. So I think when it comes to Saudi women. The issue is a lot more complex. And Mohammed bin Salman is certainly not the person who's going to lead any kind of reform. I think we've sort of discussed that already, how he's really just a child um, doing an adult's job. Well, and I think Saudi Arabia will probably swing back to them uh, in a little bit. So uh, before we get to Iran, though, uh, Robert, let's uh, ask you our surprise question of the day. Uh, and that is, um, what was your original inspiration for getting into the field of international affairs? A book, a person, a place, a thing? I think my whole life, my childhood, uh, I'm the grandchild of immigrants. Um, one set of them was still alive when I was a child and they spoke a funny language. Uh, I was aware that we came from somewhere else, that they were in effect refugees from Eastern Europe in my case. Uh, I remember in the 50s, of course, uh, we had the threat of nuclear war. I, I'm old enough to remember being told to duck and cover during the Cuban Missile Crisis, as if, you know, crawling under your desk was going to save you from, from a nuclear holocaust. And uh, I came also from a fairly political family. My mother, in particular, was very interested in the news, uh, always watched uh, the news programs, always read the newspaper. Um, you know, I grew up watching Meet the Press uh, on Sundays with my mother. So I was just always aware. And uh, and then, of course, I went to college. Well, in my senior year, um, let's see, Bobby Kennedy was killed. Martin Luther King was killed. We had the riots at the Democratic Convention, the war in Vietnam. And I started university at a time when universities were shutting down over the Vietnam War, when everyone was going on strike and protesting the war in Vietnam. So I can't really, I can't point to one thing. I studied Russian in college. I was always interested in countries that we had poor relations with or no relations with. I wanted to know why was that. And that was the foundation for studying Russian and later became the foundation for becoming interested in Iran. Fantastic. It's the same reason I took Russian in college is I wanted to understand the language of my enemy. Of your enemy. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's so romantic. And it, no no one in the internet age knows what I mean. When when older folks, and I, I was born that terrible year you were a senior in 1968. So I, I always, I tell a similar story except being born in that terrible year. And, but but during the Cold War, you know, no internet, uh, learning about the rest of the world, China and Russia seemed so far, impossibly romantic. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, there's this weird compulsion to find your enemy fascinating. And mm -hmm. so I think a lot of us who got into security uh, during the Cold War, it's it's something along those lines. You just, you just what the heck is going on there? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. very interesting. Good stuff. Okay. Let's talk about Iran, another country that people know very little about. Um, okay. Now, we know Trump never liked the, the nuclear deal. Worst deal ever. One of many that we made, evidently. Um, but it's been a while. So perhaps we could start, Barbara, and you could tell our, our listeners uh, what Trump thought was really wrong with this deal uh, and, and how the administration views Iran more generally, why it's such a problem, why we had to pull yeah. out. Well, to the extent he thought about it, I mean, I think he this was something that he he understood would uh, be useful for him in the campaign, especially given the sources of his campaign funding, a lot of it coming from uh, Republican uh, uh, supporters of Israel 
who were basically swallowing the Israeli line on, on Iran hook, line, and sinker. And of course, uh, Bibi Netanyahu uh, never liked the Iran deal and, and fought very hard against it. So I think part of it was just political. To the extent he understood uh, the deal, I think he... Well, I'm not sure he really understood the nature of the constraints on the Iranian nuclear program adequately. He, he again, just accepted the propaganda that this was going to pave the way to the bomb, that it wasn't going to constrain Iran. And he also uh, saw it in, I think, a, a sort of bigger context that Iran was doing other things that the United States didn't like. And so this must be a bad deal because it didn't stop all of that. He didn't. He didn't get the fact that that Obama picked the nuclear issue because that seemed to be the most pressing uh, issue between Iran and the international community, between Iran and the United States. Uh, Trump, you know, wanted to see a change in Iranian policy throughout the throughout the Middle East. So he wants a better deal. Great, um, but you know, critics sort of take one of a couple of different approaches to criticizing here, saying either. You know, he's nuts to think he can get a better one now because, you know, look at all the leverage Obama had with allies and so on and so forth. And why do you think you're going to have, you know, this is like trying to move the furniture from outside the house. Why do you think you're going to do a better job this time? Or you're nuts because you don't actually want a better deal. That's some kind of a fig leaf for what the policy you actually want to pursue. And if that policy looks something like conflict, well, then you're nuts because that's not going to go very well. So. What is Trump's strategy? Do they have a way to get a better deal? Yeah, the strategy is to put maximum pressure on Iran uh, to in 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 the belief that this will somehow reduce Iran's ability to intervene in the region. Uh, now, of course, as as we all know, Iran's regional intervention is relatively cheap. It largely supports proxy groups. Uh, you know, even its its work in Syria may be coming to an end because Bashar al-Assad has has consolidated power there. Its support for the Houthis in Yemen is minimal. Uh, it does have a very strong and important relationship with Hezbollah, but Hezbollah has a lot of alternate sources of financing from uh, a big Lebanese Shia diaspora uh, around the world and various organized crime activities that that it's engaged in. So I think you know this this idea that somehow starving the country of resources will force Iran to change its policies. I think it's it's mistaken. Uh, but if one of the the other goals, um, I mean, Pompeo and the others say they don't want, they're not trying to change the regime, they're trying to change its quote unquote behavior. But I think destabilizing Iran, uh, you know, making the government there feel threatened is one of the goals of the policy that they simply they simply want to show that this administration does not regard this government in Iran as a a responsible actor in the world, and so we'll we'll try to simply punish the country as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, maximum pressure seems like something that the Obama administration thought it was generating. Were they, or were they not generating mm -hmm. a lot of pressure? They, they did generate a lot of pressure, but it was pressure in in pursuit of a of a, an attainable goal, namely a nuclear agreement with Iran, and that's why Obama had a lot of buy in from Europeans and others. Uh, it remains to be seen now how effective this round of sanctions will be. We've already uh, seen that the Chinese are not going to play along. Turkey probably not. Russia, of course, not because they're under sanctions too. Uh, India probably not that much. So I think the Iran will be able to continue to sell oil, and and the sanctions won't be as effective. But uh, psychologically, the blow is in some ways harder 
because uh, everybody's hopes sort of were risen by you know were raised by the uh, the joint comprehensive plan of action. There was a lot of optimism in Iran that they really were going to be able to see a better future for themselves and their children. That optimism is gone. There's been a lot of protest in Iran. Uh, I think uh, you know just a, a sense of gloom all around. I don't think it's going to lead to the the end of this particular regime. I think we may see more hardline forces, frankly, consolidate power because of the disappointment with President Rouhani and, and his government. A couple of his ministers have already been impeached. Um, so I think a lot of suffering from ordinary people, a kind of hunkering down. So, so just on that point, let's let's talk a little bit about the sanctions themselves. So th this time around, how do the sanctions differ? What do they look like? What, what does the U.S. want to happen here sanctions-wise? Well, they're essentially the sanctions that, that existed before, except that uh, the United Nations has not reimposed sanctions and other countries in the world have not formally reimposed sanctions. What we have is the, uh, the power of the U.S. dollar and the U.S. Uh, control over the financial system at work. So companies that have been investing in Iran, trading with Iran, will face difficulties doing business in the United States. And if you weigh the size of the Iranian economy, the size of the American economy, it's a no-brainer. You're going to dump Iran so you can keep your, your business in the United States. Uh, so in that sense, it's, it, it's quite effective. Uh, long term, I think it's going to weaken sanctions as a tool of foreign policy because uh, countries will want to find ways around the dollar. Uh, Iran will be trading with uh, China and UN. China's just started a, uh, it's an oil exchange that's denominated in UN. You will see Russia, other countries using local currencies, avoiding the dollar, creating banks that have no contact with the American financial system. Right. And Germany's um, foreign minister just uh, suggested- He talked about yeah. it. I don't think the Europeans will really be able to do much because their, their economies are too entwined with the United States. But elsewhere, we will see a change. And that long term is not good for the United States when, I mean, if we use sanctions- in this sort of uh, promiscuous way, uh, when we really need them, they won't work because there will be other mechanisms that people have developed to get around them. So I think it's very short-sighted. Um, let's remember, Iran has been implementing this agreement. The United States is the one that violated it. And uh, it's just a, a really uh, foolish exercise, I think, but it's going to cause a lot of pain. Yeah. So, so what do we have any... Um... Uh, metrics yet, early metrics on what's happening to Iran's economy as these things kind of kick back in? I think it's pretty clear that they're going probably back into recession. Um, and unemployment's up, inflation definitely up. The, the currency has lost 80% of its value since Donald Trump came in. Uh, so that alone, any imported product, of course, they have to raise the prices. Foreign airlines have decided not to fly there anymore, many of them European uh, airlines. Uh, and prices have gone up. So the people are basically more isolated and they have less purchasing power as a result of these steps. But the, the thing is, you know, and when you think about what a recession in the United States means to people, and, and, and let's say, let's pick a deep one, let's take, pick the Great Recession. I mean, it means people losing their houses, people losing their jobs, um, you know, people putting off important life decisions because they don't have prospects and so on and so forth. These things are very serious for lots and lots of people. But if you don't think your government is the one who started it, it seems odd to me to imagine that you would expect the public to, you know, for there to be any distance between the government and the, and the public on that. That that seems like the public's going to rally and say, "Hey, we, you know, this yeah. is crap." But you know, 
Well, I don't think they're rallying because, you know, we've got 40 years of accumulated grievances against this government, which is repressive and, uh, you know, has not ever fulfilled the potential that Iran really could have as a 80 million people, you know, well-educated, fully literate uh, uh, population uh, in in that crucial part of the world. So I think people have plenty of grievances, and yes, they're angry at the United States, but I think they're probably more angry at their own government. So does the Trump administration have a shot with maximum pressure no, here? Does no, it... I don't think so, because the one thing people don't want is chaos and violence. They've seen enough of that in, in places like Iraq and Syria. They don't want American-engineered regime change. They don't want this foreign intervention. Uh, but there is a lot of discontent, and you know, it's my hope that the government can somehow use this opportunity to to make major reforms. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, we just, as I say, see this hunkering down, and they have to rely on whatever mechanisms they have to get through this. And if that includes more power for the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, more smuggling, you know, that's what they'll do to survive. So it seems like in D.C. Um, there is sort of a, a major discourse developing that, you know, regime change in Iran is the solution. That somehow if the Rouhani's regime steps down or is ousted, there will be a regime in place that will somehow will make the U.S. and Iranian relationship so much better. Um, in your view, is that that even why is that why does that discourse exist because we've never really had an Iranian regime that's been US friendly and second um why is regime change especially after the Iraq war being touted as an actual policy yeah well i mean we had good relations under the shah and that was one of the reasons they had a revolution <laughs> so um uh, look, I think it's I think it's uh, it's very naive. We have no idea what would follow this particular form of government. It could be worse. It could be a military dictatorship. Uh, now, of course, if it was a military dictatorship that liked the United States, of course, you know that would Trump would be very happy. But the odds of that happening, I think, are small. Iran has developed a series of alliances, relationships over the last forty years that that kind of constrain it in a way as well. Um, why do people support it? I don't know. I mean, look, Iran chants death to America, death to Israel. These are the slogans at the, the rallies. Uh, they support groups that have been hostile, certainly, toward Israel. And I think a, a big source of the support for regime change are people who are very, very, very dedicated to Bibi Netanyahu and to the Likud government in Israel. Groups like Foundation for Defense of Democracies, I, you know, I call them the Foundation for the Defense of the Likud because that's what they are. The only countries they ever criticize are ones that have bad relations with Bibi Netanyahu. So um, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, they don't care if Iran is a democracy. They just don't like the particular orientation that that Iran is taking. I will say though that you don't hear much support for um, for U.S. invasions. I think. You know, even the people who would like to see regime change in Iran understand that uh, it would be uh, a complete and total fiasco. And if you, I mean, if you didn't like the Iraq war, just imagine that multiplied by about 50 and you'd get a, a war with Iran. So they're focusing on uh, economic war, information war, you know, using Voice of America, other U.S. Uh, you know, Mike Pompeo's Twitter account to uh, to criticize Iran's human rights abuses. And I mean, there's fertile ground there. Uh, some of the things that Iran has done is, you know, are just unconscionable. Um, but as we just talked about, I mean, considering the neighborhood it's in, you know, Saudi Arabia, yeah. Uh, so it's not uh, it's not uh, laudatory, but it's not exactly out of out of out of context. Yeah. All right. So so if if we're Iran for a minute. 
and we're we're faced with the Trump administration pulling out of this deal that we've kind of spent a long time figuring this is the path forward. What does Iran do now? And we'll have to take this in a couple of parts, but let's just stay on the nuclear side of it for now. You know, you, you can what? You know, you could give in. You could say, "All right, what do you want?" You could say, "You know what? We already had a deal. You don't get anything. If you want to come back to this deal, that's fine." Or you can say, "Screw it, it's nukes time." <laughs> what are they going to do? Yeah. Well, for the short term, they're going to hang in there. Um, you know, one of the arguments a lot of us have made to them is, you know, hold on, regime change is coming to Washington. Uh, and, you know, they're acutely aware of the fact that the president of the United States is under multiple investigations, that we have midterm elections coming, and uh, it's entirely possible that the House of Representatives will flip. Um, and so his power may be, may be diminished, uh, you know, coming next year and the chances for him to be reelected, perhaps not, not, not that great. Um, so I think for the, you know, also they understand if they walk out, then they essentially force the other parties that are trying to observe the deal, China, Europe, they will, they will reimpose sanctions most likely if, uh, if Iran walks out. They are doing a little bit of hedging around the edges. I saw a report that they've asked for some uh, medium-grade enriched uranium that they sent to Russia to be sent back, 20% enriched uranium. They've talked about opening a new factory to produce more advanced centrifuges. So, I mean, they are preparing themselves for the possibility that they could ramp up again if the deal completely collapses. Uh, and also, you know, accumulating a little bit more leverage in case negotiations uh, do resume. But at this point, they're not going to talk to Trump. They they say, fine, you want to talk to us? Come back into compliance with the deal, and then we'll be happy to sit down and talk to you about anything that you like. And so President Trump's uh, recent offer to meet with President Rouhani at the UN, uh-uh, don't think so. So if you're the Trump administration, I think, you know, and again, Trump, I have no idea if he's ever thought for two minutes in a row about this. So not I don't mean him when I say Trump administration. I mean someone responsible for thinking about what Iran's doing next with nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And that person, I believe, uh, did not think Iran was earnest in signing this deal. So they already thought that Iran was either going to cheat or somehow immediately break out and get a weapon as soon as this deal is done. And so if if, if I'm thinking about Iran from that perspective, I'm thinking um, Iran is starting to cheat now. They're hedging to, you mm -hmm. know, speed up this time, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, because, you know, they should be now worried about what we're going to do since we don't think that, you know. So I, I would think that the Trump administration uh, has, would talk itself into a much more hawkish, um, you know, strategy. But so that, love is a very long pivot. The, the pivot here is, but the Trump administration, as you've already made clear, has a broader set of things they'd like to push Iran on, not just the nuclear deal. And I guess, you know, you can debate the wisdom of trying to do too many things against Iran at one time, um, but it's clear that they're actually looking at this strategy as a bigger picture sort mm -hmm. of thingy. So tell us a little bit about what, you know, what the Pompeo speech, did that really outline what it's, what it is, or is it turned into something else or? Yeah. I mean, he, he's, uh, he gave, he's given a couple speeches on, on Iran, two major speeches on Iran. One of them, uh, his first uh, major speeches as Secretary of State uh, outlined 12 demands. Uh, I wrote about it afterwards that it was not just asking the leopard to change his spots, but asking the leopard to turn himself into a lamb. Uh, it wouldn't be the Islamic Republic of Iran if they abided by these 12 demands. 
Uh, and then he gave another speech, which was billed as a speech to the Iranian American, Iranian Americans and Iranian people, where you know he said, "As you protest, you know we hear you, we stand with you, we wish you good luck." Blah blah blah. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think this is part of the information war that I mentioned. Uh, to try to undermine the Iranian government and to encourage people there to protest, to destabilize the country if possible, encourage uh, uh, uprisings by ethnic minorities if possible, and and then all of this within uh, this this over, our overarching strategy of economic pressure just to to hobble the country and and make it uh, miserable and hopefully weaken it as an actor uh, in the region. That that's the strategy. And why? <laughs> because uh, because our allies in the region, uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, uh, don't like what Iran is doing in the region, don't like the fact that it has uh, profited from the mistakes that all of those countries and the United States have made in the region. I mean, basically, uh, you know, Iran, uh, you look at where they are powerful uh, Hezbollah. Well, Hezbollah wouldn't exist if Israel hadn't invaded Lebanon in 1982. Iraq. United States got rid of Saddam Hussein and Iran-backed militias and other groups took over. Uh, Yemen. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia decided to start bombing the country and uh, as a result, uh, the groups there that oppose Saudi Arabia, the Houthis, uh, became closer to Iran. So I always say that people who complain about Iranian regional influence are like, uh, you know, people who shoot their parents and then complain that they're orphans. I mean, so much of that influence comes not from any brilliant Iranian strategy, but from the uh, grotesque uh, strategic arrows of, of others. Um, but, you know, this is where we are. And they are on one side of all these conflicts in the United States, Saudi Arabia, Israel, UAE are on the other side. And we seem locked in this uh, adversarial relationship. There was a, a glimmer of hope under Obama that the nuclear deal was a foundation for talking about conflict resolution and that the United States was somehow not going to side with Iran, but become more neutral and, uh, and try to leverage our power as a superpower uh, to have relationships with all the parties that count in the region. Trump administration has now thrown that away and has simply adopted the views of, uh, of these other countries against Iran. And as a result, uh, we are complicit in, in war crimes in, in Yemen. And uh, we can't even resolve something like this ridiculous dispute between Saudi Arabia and, and Qatar. Uh, and certainly, let's not even begin to talk about Arab-Israeli peace. I mean, I, I won't waste anybody's time with that. Um, so uh, I, I don't understand... I don't understand the policy. I, I, I guess I understand it in terms of domestic politics, that it plays to those who have supported Trump uh, in his election, who support him now. But in terms of U.S. influence and leadership in the Middle East, it, it, it really is a huge step backward. It almost seems like the Trump administration's Iran policy or whatever it is, is more driven by interests that are geared towards Israel. Mm -hmm. So it almost seems like the U.S. is a pawn of Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, and Iran even. So I don't know, perhaps I'm being optimistic, but if that is packaged as something that is told to the Trump administration's support, then perhaps they will have, they'll back something no, else. No, Trump but... administration supporters, his base support Israel. I mean, a lot of them are Christian evangelicals 
who are much stronger supporters of the current government of Israel than than American Jews are. So, uh, you know, if if you're looking at this from a very cold domestic political standpoint, and uh, and also if you don't don't really want to send troops there, you want others to kind of manage it, and and that's also an element of the Trump policy. I mean, he's basically allowed, you know, ceded uh, to Israel the right to go into Syria at any time and bomb Iranians anytime they want. Uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis are doing most of the heavy lifting in 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 Yemen. Um, Russia also, of course, he's ceded uh, a lot of influence and power to to Russia as well in uh, in Syria. Uh, you know, it works fine for him. I mean, he. I don't think Trump really really worries about uh, the long term future of U.S. leadership. Um, if he did, he would he would change a lot of his policies. It occurs to me that the the, the answers to the why question are usually unsatisfying because mm -hmm. it, you, you, you search in vain for a real strategic answer or justification. For me, I guess I, I would say that it, it smacks of the kind of perpetual U.S. Uh, instincts to attempt to um, organize and influence everything around the world, regardless if it's any of our business, because we're just used to being in charge of things. And, and frankly, you know, for my money, um, you know, a, a strategy of less leadership in the Middle East would be uh, preferable. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure we're going to get that, Barbara. Just to wrap up, your 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 prognostications over the next few years. What's Iran going to do? What's the U.S. going to do? Is this we're going to get a war? I I may be, or may hmm. not be on the record in a previous podcast of predicting bad things. Once mm -hmm. I knew Bolton was on board, but mm. uh, yeah, bomb bomb Iran indeed. Um, you know, it's it's there are a lot of variables. Uh, we have to wait and see. Obviously, what happens in the U.S. politically. Uh, we have to see how long the supreme leader of Iran is with us and, and what happens when he passes from the scene. What happens in Saudi Arabia? Will MBS survive? You know, how strong will he be? So I think there are a lot of variables, but, you know, it's easiest to predict what's already happening. <laughs> so I think continued conflict and destabilization in the region, uh, not a happy trajectory for, for Iran. Uh, you know, I would hope that Iran would change some of its attitudes. Uh, not because Trump demands it, but because it's in, in Iran's own best interests uh, to pull back from some of its regional interventions, to to institute some reforms, to definitely empty its jails of political prisoners, uh, and try to to bring some sort of uh, you know to to gain some popularity on, uh, for its own merits without constantly referencing uh, the actions of others. But that's probably too optimistic. And on that wonderful note. That's a wrap for today. Barbara, thank you for joining us. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeff Geld, and to all of you out there listening. Thanks, and we'll catch you next time.